French sociologist Emile Durkheim used the term collective effervescence to describe the times when we escape our humdrum day-to-day routines and to dissolve our identities into a group. Because as we gather, an electricity is released and we share emotions and we're transported beyond ourselves. Now, most of us just cannot wait for the moment when the physical restrictions that currently separate us are lifted and we can all gather again to effervesce. And I'm sure we will all feel this new electricity flowing between us, our friends, our family, and we will appreciate it far more sharply than we ever did before. The kindness economy is also about this kind of collective electricity. It's about a group of people building or working within companies who share a common purpose as they reach for something more. Of course they want to create or maintain a healthy, profitable business, but they can also see that this must be done in a much wider context than just looking at the bottom line. They're acknowledging just how much damage has been inflicted on so many people and of course the planet by how we've been doing business for so long. You see, we incentivize growth at all cost and we ignored the damage that this does. We were singular in a way that cut the threads of interconnection we all should have guarded much more fiercely. Because it's the warp and the weft of these threads that create the fabric of society that binds us all together and has the potential to lift us all up as one. It's important because the kindness economy isn't just about do-gooding. It's not a question of being selflessly kind to others. It's about our collective experience because when I lift you up, guess what? I am lifted up too. Doing business in a way that honours the environment and our fellow humans will do more good to all of us. What's the point of maximising profit if we're all living in a world that's dying? Or doing so at the cost of our well-being or of those at the bottom of the ladder? Together we can create Durkheim's electricity to transport beyond our own narrow interests and reinvent our collective purpose. Together we are stronger. I'm Mary Portas and this is The Kindness Economy. Kindness Economy podcast is supported by BT and its small business support scheme. Right, who have I got today? Oh, yes, I think it's Carenza. Carenza from BT. Tell me, what is BT doing to help support the kindness economy? Oh, thanks, Mary. So we are participating in an amazing scheme called Digital Boost, and that's enabling our our BT colleagues to take part in this fantastic mentoring scheme, enabling them to lend their expertise to help businesses for free. So through Digital Boost, um, we're aiming to help in the first instance at least 1,000 small businesses. Um, they can they can book into the scheme and they can access our experts on cyber 
cybersecurity, on digital marketing, on advertising, on sales, on a whole range of different topics. And we're giving one-on-one coaching sessions that last an hour. That's great. Why didn't you ask me to do that? Joking. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Would you like to? Would you like to be a guest no, 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 mentor? I, I haven't got the time. Maybe I should do one. I, I think do you like should. the idea of that. I think you a should mentor. join in. Mentors are really important, aren't they? Mentors, kindness, you know, giving their time for nothing. I love the idea of that. So don't forget, small businesses, you can find out more about the support on offer from our wonderful BT, my partner on this podcast, by visiting bt.com forward slash small business support. So later on, we're going to be talking to Kate Rayworth, an economist who just absolutely has revolutionised the way that we will look at the economy with her book, The Donut Economy. And so I thought it would be really interesting for the person that I have coming down my next line to be someone from my finance team. Who is it at the other end who could talk economy and economics to me? Who have I got? Hello, Mary. It's Mark, your finance director. <laughs> That's Mark, my finance director. You're a, a finance director that is very unique to the Portis Agency because you ooze kindness and you so will be in line with Kate Rayworth's way of thinking around the donut economy. But, but Mark, tell me, what have you seen out and about this week that really shows the kindness economy in action? Well, we were emailed about a great new skincare brand called Nursum. So it was launched in 2018 via a crowdfund by a former nurse uh, called Antonia. And like a lot of nurses, she suffered from uh, sore, cracked hands. Apparently, uh, nurses wash their hands about 55 times a day. So so anyway, Nursum's hand balm is a solution for that. And uh, they've got a great mission around it, which is that every product sold, they will supply each nurse with a month's supply worth of hand balm. Uh, And so far, they've helped 160,000 nurses uh, to date. And their long-term goal is to provide free hand cream to every NHS nurse by 2025. Oh, that's lovely. Do you know, honestly, I have to be a bit naughty here. I thought you said nursem. I thought you meant nursing the baby and then the cracked, I thought you were going to say nipples, but you said hands. Cracked nipples. Oh, let's not talk about those. That brings me back. (laughs) Have you got anything else, Marky, down on the kindness economy that you've seen? Yes. um, I also saw uh, Nike, uh, Nike's uh, new inclusive footwear which is called uh, Go Fly Ease. It's a um, completely hands-free shoe. They've been working with their uh, roster of, of disabled athletes um, to design the product. And it's got this clever hinge system that, you know, it just allows you to put your foot straight in. Don't need to touch it with your hands. So it's, it's revolutionary. Wow. What, for, for people who don't have hands? Yeah, 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 exactly. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Marky, thank you so much. Now go back and count up my money and see whether I've got enough. I Joking. Will. I will. Love you, mate. <laughs> you too. See ya. Bye. Kate Rayworth calls herself a rebel economist, and it's true. Now she's a senior research associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute. But she was initially switched off economics at university because it didn't answer the questions she and many of us now care about, like protecting the environment and challenging, of course, inequality. But luckily, she connected again with it. And the topic of her 2017 book, Donut Economics, has been published in 18 languages. In it, 
Kate calls for a new kind of economy, one that moves beyond that one-dimensional GDP, the country's financial value, to one that actually encompasses the assessment of people, of well-being and our planet. It's a deeply human caring interpretation of a subject that I didn't really connect with until I heard Kate speak. Now you can hear her because she is quite an incredible woman. So we're going to start by diving in at the deep end as she tells me about how it all began. So it it goes back to um, the 1929 depression in the US. Um, The American economy collapsed. And in the US, they didn't have a measure of economic output. You could measure things in tons of steel produced and sacks of grain produced, but there was no measure of the total output. So US Congress asked a brilliant young economist called Simon Kuznets to come up with a measure. Could you add this up? It's a way of calculating something that we could call our national income. And why is it crashed? And how do we get it back? And so Kuznets did this and he was brilliant and he figured out a way of adding all this stuff up and he called it national income. It's now what we have, it's morphed over the years, but we now call it GDP, but it's the same thing essentially. And and suddenly you had for the first time in like 1934, one number that told you the output of the US economy. And then of course that one number begs a question, which is, well, is it going to go up or will it go down? How much is it going to be next year? And how can we bring ourselves out of a depression? And then very quickly, how can we take ourselves into a war and ensure that there's enough money and goods circulating in the domestic economy so that people can meet their needs and we can take enough off for the war effort and go and produce tanks and guns and machines? So it was a really useful tool in the US at the time. But Kuznets himself gave the warning and, and said, you know, this, this measure that I've created, it can scarcely be used to tell you about the welfare of a nation. And if you read his original paper, he was very clear why. He said, well, it doesn't tell you anything about the value that's created in the household or the unpaid caring work that's going on there. It doesn't tell you about the value that's created in the community, in society. And it only tells you the value of what's been sold. It doesn't tell you what's been lost. So it'll only tell you the, the value of timber, but it didn't tell you the value of the forest you cut down. So he saw the whole thing from the beginning. But the power of numbers, we all know the power of numbers, right? Having in your hand a number, one number that tells you for a nice convenient headline, the value that an economy is creating. And then over time, we we start to be able to create, compare one country against another. So that by 1961, when the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development was founded, which was all sort of Europe and the US and Australia and Canada's countries coming together post-war saying, right, we're going to cooperate in development. Their their number one aim was to pursue the highest sustainable rate of economic growth. And they began to print tables that compared each nation's GDP and each nation's GDP growth rate. And suddenly a horse race is on and we've got a cold war. And so we're looking at the comparison between how much stuff the US can turn out versus the how much stuff the USSR can turn out. So GDP has become a political weapon of which ideology works. So it was very, very powerful in the 20th century. But then we get to the early 1970s and there was a landmark report came out called The Limits to Growth, written by Donella Meadows, Dennis Meadows and others. And they said, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We're running away with this idea of growth. But you know what? It's creating pollution. It's running down resources that we need. We need to put it in a bigger context. And indeed, Bobby Kennedy gave a speech 
very famous speech now in 1968, and he says, you know, GDP, it reflects everything but the laughter of our children and the strengths of our societies and the quality of our poetry. It, it catches everything but that which makes worth life worth living. So the questions kicked in in the late 60s, early 70s. And yet the grip is still so strong. I mean, go and listen to any politician speaking in a national parliament today. Go and read any economics writer. Go and sit in on any economics, macroeconomics lecture. And GDP is still so strong as if this was the metric that gives us the strongest sense of our nation's success. And what's worse, the idea that our economies must keep on growing. I mean, they're dependent upon it. We expect demand and depend upon GDP to keep going up no matter how rich economy already is. So we're living here in the UK, we're living in one of the richest countries in the world, richer than almost any nation has ever been before. But our politicians and our economists and our journalists, economic journalists, totally expect and believe that our nation's success and the solution to all our economic ills lies in yet more growth. And that's not going away until we transform this paradigm. So what I'd love to hear from you is, just explain now to people what you mean we, by the, the donut economy, just uh, the shape of it and why this is really important to the way we live it going forward. Yeah, and I'll just say I, I alone did not work it all out cleverly. So what I did after being disillusioned by the economics that I was taught, I went and read all the economics I wasn't taught. So I read Herman Daly, who places the economy within the living planet, and I read... Marilyn Waring and Nancy Folbray, who say, hey, what about the unpaid care economy that women spend most of their time in for no pay at all? And I read about Commons Theory by Ellen Ostrom, and I read about Systems Thinking by Donella Meadows. And then I, in writing down economics, brought together all of these ideas that are at the periphery of mainstream economics, but are brilliant and should be at the heart of our new economic thinking. And I, and I made them dance on the same page. And at the heart of that is indeed a picture that looks like a donut with a hole in the middle of it. So the donut is like a compass for human prosperity in the 21st century. And if you think of a donut with a hole in the middle, then you can imagine humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the middle of that picture. And it means that the hole in the middle of the donut is the place where people don't have the resources they need to meet the essentials of life. It's where they don't have the resources for having enough food or water or healthcare, education, housing, political voice, gender equality, income and work. And these, I've crowdsourced these social priorities from the Sustainable Development Goals, which means that all the governments in the world have already agreed that everyone in the world has a claim to meeting these, so it's pretty incontrovertible. Leave nobody without the resources to meet the essentials of life. Leave no one in the hole in the donut. You could say that was actually the 20th century project and, and that back in the 20th century, they would have said, well, that's why we need GDP, because when we create jobs and we had labor intensive industries, think of, you know, think of Fordist America and, and the factories in the UK and across the Western world. When GDP goes up, work goes up and we employ more men in the factories and they earn a wage packet and they take it home to their families. So the very 20th century concept, yeah, more GDP, probably more income going into households. But that's really changed. And what we've seen in recent years is GDP has gone up and up and up while wages actually have stagnated. So we need to also recognise that while GDP has gone up and up and up, so too has humanity's pressure on this planet. And now we realise we are using Earth's resources in such a way that we are breaking down the life supporting systems of our planet. So just as there's a hole in the middle of the donut, we don't want to fall over. We also mustn't overshoot the outer ring of the donut. That's the ecological ceiling where we overshoot our pressure on the planet and we create climate breakdown. We cause ecological breakdown. 
we create a hole in the ozone layer, we acidify the oceans, convert too much of Earth's surface for human use. And, and these are the nine planetary boundaries that Earth system scientists recognised as Earth's life support systems just over a decade ago. It's so new. And so when you put those two together, the goal is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet so that both people and planet can thrive. And suddenly the shape of progress has completely changed. So the 20th century vision set out around Kuznets's national income idea was this curving line of exponential growth that gets sharper and steeper and steeper and goes up, 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 up through the ceiling. Whereas now the donor actually says well-being lies between that inner ring and the outer ring. It's about balance and it's about thriving and it's about health, which is what we definitely understand at the level of our own bodies, health lies in balance. And we need to take that understanding to the planetary body. So the donut is about thriving in balance while we meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And if you start there, if the first lecture of economics isn't, welcome to economics, here's supply and demand, let's get down to the market. If the first lecture of economics is, welcome to economics, here's the goal. We are trying to design economies to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. Well, everything else that comes after that is just completely transformed. I'm wondering how gender and how we as women can influence all this. There, you know, there's two parts to my, my question here, I guess, is how can economics embrace women more and our concerns and our values? And do you think we need more women making economic policy to really create this kind of change? So this is huge. And you're absolutely right that your instinct with economics was very male. Uh, it's also very white, very wealthy and very northern in terms of the global north, in terms of who wrote it. I mean, just who are the founding founding fathers of economics? Because they are all fathers. Well, it's Adam Smith, it's David Ricardo, John Maynard Keynes, Milton Friedman. I mean, you know, left or right perspective, take it all. Karl Marx. They're all white men from well-off families in the global north. And that had huge implications for what they saw and what they didn't see and what they put at the centre of their theories and what they left in the periphery and what they thought we should pursue. So my favourite story of it, and it's written in a brilliant book by Catherine Marcel, who cooked Adam Smith's dinner. The best story is about Adam Smith. So he wrote this famous <laughs> line in The Wealth of Nations, 1776. He wrote, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer and the baker that we should expect our dinner. It is from their regard to their own interest. Meaning you don't have... Uh, meat and bread and beer on the table at dinner time because these people have been kind to you and come and brought it to you as charity. No, you have it on the table because there's a market and because you want to buy it, they produce it and that's why markets work. Well, Adam was 30, Adam was 43 when he was writing this book and he wasn't married and he didn't have kids. In fact, he lived at home with his mum who must have cooked his dinner every day. And yet there he is writing about the, you know, the self-interest of the butcher, the brewer and the baker and completely disregarding the unpaid caring work of his mum. I mean, if only at that moment she called him for dinner and he might have woken up and he might have invented feminist economics right there in 1776, but he didn't. So we went to another 200 years without it until feminists and econo we, female economists came along and said, hello, I think we need to recognise that a lot of value in society is actually creating the unpaid caring work in the home, it's not paid, it totally underpins the market. I mean, businesses only want to hire people who are, uh, first of all, toilet trained, as Alvin Toffoli used to say, you know, how much would your staff be worth to you if they weren't toilet trained, decent citizens, good at collaborating, learn to share, learn to be decent with people, uh, socialised beings. 
So all that unpaid caring work, and also, by the way, they're nursed back to health when they get sick. Who's doing that nursing? Who's doing the cooking, washing, cleaning, sweeping, ironing their clothes, getting their clean, ready to appear at the factory door on Monday morning? It's the women. And it's totally invisible in the economy. But also David Ricardo, who was thought that actually the problem with the economy was that we were going to run out of land and there wasn't going to be enough land. And then suddenly, oh, actually, no, we're in a we're in a nation that's just colonising overseas. Actually, there's an awful lot of land around the world. So land actually isn't short because we can go and claim it elsewhere. What we're going to run out of is labour. And so that's why economics still today is very heavily focused around pushing labour productivity, labour productivity. Actually, there are too many people without enough jobs. What we need is resource productivity, not more labour productivity. We've also got economics that's been designed by the global north and thinking about uh, and also middle and upper classes. So we need we need economic theory that's definitely by women, by people of colour, by people from the global south, by people from working class backgrounds who say, hang on a minute. My world experience of what the economy is and how it works and where power lies is completely missing from the past. And I want to bring it back. And that is, I have to say, a good thing that's happening in the world today, that a much more diverse group of people are coming into economics and saying, we don't want it to be exactly what you experienced it from the outside. We want to reinvent it. This root concept of economic growth has been driving us as individuals to buy more and more and more. And I I found this um, fascinating um, consumer propaganda that was created by Edward Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. You'll probably know this, but I'm going to read it out anyway. Who realised that his uncle's psychotherapy could be turned into a very lucrative retail therapy. If we could be convinced to believe that we transform ourselves every time we buy something more. So take fashion. Women's clothing shops initially started with four seasons. Then it was 12. Now some have 52 seasons. It's a drop every day. You know, have to get this. Um, And so the design of marketing and advertising often is made to make us feel deficient. You know, and they put their skills into tapping in to the most vulnerable parts of human nature. Now... What would you be doing advising those businesses on a Monday morning when they're going through the sales? What would you say to them that needs to go on there? What are the principles of what's success? What would be your ideal and where would they start? So first of all, I say uh, good morning. It's good to join you. I just want to ask you, have you invited me here? Do you want me here? Because if you haven't invited me, I'll, I'll leave now. I have absolutely zero interest in lobbying you. Because you know what, there are so many companies that are on this and are in action, and I would, I'll just go and talk with them. So for I, first, my first principle of working is I've never once asked anybody to use the donut, talk about the donut, work with the donut, promote it, and never once asked, and never knocked on a shut door. So I wrote Donut Economics actually when I was the mother of two very small children. My kids are now 12, but they were pretty young while I was researching and writing that book. And... First principle of a busy mother is you don't waste your time knocking on a shut door. So I've just only ever gone where the energy is and it's been the best best principle um, for, for focusing on working with people who want to. So first of all, I said, do you want me here? And if they say, yeah, yeah, no, 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 we really do. We've, we've heard you talking with people talking about this and we really want to learn about this. I say, okay, so we could talk about the design of your products all we like, right? We could put a, I don't know, a dress that you've just got in this week's shipment in to sell in your shop and we could of course talk about the social side of the dress around the the wages paid and the terms of conditions for the women who are working making this dress we could talk about the ecological impact of the dress is it made from uh fibers that are going to be used is it circular is it you know we could talk about the design of the dress but actually i don't want to talk about the design of the dress 
I want to talk about the design of your company. And there are five key design traits that really are going to determine whether or not you are stuck every Monday morning looking at uh, your market share, your profit and your sales, or whether you can actually become a company that on Monday morning can look at something bigger and attract the new graduates who really are much more interested in working com with companies that have got a bigger vision than that. So five traits. The first one, purpose. Please tell me, board, why does this company exist? What are you in service to? I mean, why do you exist? Why should the world have you here? And, and is your purpose, well, we want to be the biggest women's fashion retailer in Europe, or your purpose is actually, we want to create beautiful designs that help uh, create good jobs for people and do so within the living planet. So respecting, but there are companies, by the way, clothing companies out there that would say absolutely that was their vision. So are you stuck inside your own vision or are you part of, do, you, do you see a bigger living purpose towards which you're contributing? Second, your networks. Who are your customers and what's the message and the values that you're instilling in them? Are you telling them they, they're not good enough and they need to come back and buy another dress next week? Um, are you actually sharing your values with them and they come because of your purpose? Who are your suppliers and those relationships you have down supply chains? And are you cutting fast and loose between them to keep them on their toes or actually building long-term relations because you know when you push costs and risks onto them they'll only just push them down onto the workers who are the most vulnerable in the supply chain so your purpose and your networks third how you govern yourselves uh who has voice at this decision table whoever comes in the boardroom do the workers ever come in here uh, does anybody representing the living planet and your impact on it ever come in here? What metrics are you using? OK, we know you're talking about, you know, market share and profits and sales. But are you using any metrics to talk about cutting wastage, cutting water use, improving working conditions, ensuring there's no child labour in your supply chains? Have you brought those metrics in and are you putting them at the heart of your vision? And then now let's go deeper because we can talk about your purpose. We can talk about your networks and we can talk about governance. Let's get out of the really important stuff. How is this company owned? Because whether this company is owned by a family or uh, a founding entrepreneur or venture capital or shareholders or the state or its own employees or its own customers, and these are all very legitimate designs for ownership of a company, that's, of course, going to massively determine what sits at the bottom of these design traits, and that is finance and where the money in your company is coming from and therefore what it's demanding and expecting you do and how the profits that your company generates are distributed. Are they reinvested in the purpose? Are they siphoned up very quickly to shareholders who are hollering for more? Are they paid out as an employee bonus to the employees because they own the company? Uh, are they paid as a living wage down the supply chain? So your purpose, your networks, your governance, how you're owned and how you're financed, that is what I'd like to talk to you at this board meeting this Monday morning. And your answers to that will pretty much tell me whether you're stuck in 20th century growthism. And I wish you luck with that. But not that much luck with that, because actually I don't think we need companies like yours anymore. Or are you actually pivoting and able to pursue a 21st century business model where you actually want to do business in a way that enables people to plan it to thrive. And it's not easy. And the finance isn't out there yet, by the way. And the regulations aren't out there. The government legislation does not yet fully support you. And the UK Section 172 of the Companies Act pushes you towards shareholder interest. And it needs to be much more 
embracing the interests of everybody. I still go back to this idea of success, um, you know, success being ha- growth, growth, growth. And in my head, I'm always waking up to the Today programme and it's doing the business analysis of, you know, what business has been successful. And there is still only one tenet of success, and that's GDP. How can we influence government to show that that is not the only level of of success and therefore that will influence business to behave accordingly. One way you could influence government is take them to a town where through big businesses uh, deciding that they weren't getting their maximum returns there, they shut the shops. And so just take them to the, you know, the stripped out high streets. And is this, is this success? They're doing, you know, Amazon and others doing great online sales and, and our community centres are dead and no one wants to live and young people are leaving. And places like Preston have taken that situation and turned it around and they do what's called community wealth building. And so the city council with the university and the schools and the hospitals and the museum, they get together and they say, we have a lot of spending power here and we're going to buy from local businesses. We're going to buy from worker-owned enterprises or co-ops. We're going to make sure that we're providing kids with good food that's grown locally in schools. And they are using their, their purchasing power to rebuild that local web. And, and, and now the Preston model, by the way, is one of the, the UK's greatest exports in terms of it's inspiring people the world over. People in the UK are like, Preston? Why would you go to Preston? And the rest of the world goes, oh, the Preston model, we're so incredibly inspired by what they're doing there because they are turning their own story around. But I want to pull out to the level of the national. What's really interesting that's happening is that some governments and some nations are bucking a hundred years trend of saying, you know, we've got to have a big GDP. That's how you get to be a part of the G20 and the G7. You've got to be a big power. And if you don't keep growing, then you're going to get nudged out by the next emerging powerhouse. Some nations that will probably never really be big part of the G20 say, you know what, we're just going off, go and, go and play a more interesting game. So you've got Scotland, you've got Wales, Iceland, um, New Zealand, nations where the prime minister or the leaders are saying, we're going to be, thank you very much. I'm glad you spotted that. All women, uh, they're saying we are going to become a well-being economy. And there's a group called the Wellbeing Governments Alliance forming around the Wellbeing Economies Alliance. They are coming together and say, we're going to talk about well-being. New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern introduced the well-being budget. And at the heart of their budget is looking at how we spend for well-being, not how we spend for growth. So they, like, like companies that can pivot from serving growth to serving thriving, we're seeing national governments pivoting from serving endless growth. How, what an uninteresting goal, I'm sorry, especially in countries that are richer than any before them have ever been and that are massively overshooting the planet. We need to serve thriving, and that means coming back within planetary boundaries, but it also means far healthier, more equitable, socially just society domestically. And there's a lot of leadership of this at the city level. So Amsterdam was the first city in the world to adopt the donut as a model for the city they want to become. They've inspired Nanaimo in Canada. They've inspired Copenhagen, Brussels. We're getting new cities literally every day. We're being hearing new places saying we want to. The city leadership is brilliant because it's a, it, it's government, but it's a small place where you can get people together. People often, I think in the UK, often feel more proud of the city that they say they're from than from the nation they say they're from. And so we're beginning to rebuild a pride, a creativity, a distinctiveness of culture about this place around cities. And I think they're leading us. Let, let's say, you know, here we are in the West, we are on this journey and, and you can feel this journey is happening and it, it actually feels 
deeply unmodern even at its most sim simplest form not to be on this new way of working because it is going to be the next generations that want to work with businesses that do respect all the stuff that we talk about that give opportunity that look at community that look at the world and humanity and how we can behave better on our planet how are we going to help the world on this you know it's a bit like sort of the um our parents' generation or the baby boomers going, yeah, we had a lovely time. We know we fucked up, uh, but we've had a lovely time and we've got a lovely life and now it's down to you guys. And we kind of go, well, why would I not want that lovely life in the house and the car and so forth? Would it be the West giving power and money to help them create this new economy? Or do you believe that this is a really, I mean, it's, it's got to be a massive job, hasn't it? Uh, well, I think the first job happens here in the West, which is that, Today's high-income countries, which I would never call developed countries or advanced countries, uh, and, and you didn't, but some many people do, you know, think developed countries. Hello. No, 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 no. If we take the donuts as a starting point, there are no developed countries in the world. Uh, we all are on a journey of transformation. So today's high-income countries, and I'm now talking about the whole of Europe, Japan, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, are have more money than any nation has ever had in the past before them so should jolly well be able to meet the needs of all people but are massively overshooting the means of this planet they are massively running down the living planet and the first impacts of that fall hardest in the lowest income countries so there's a very direct connection to the excessive consumption of high income countries and the climate change and the ecological breakdown it causes that falls hardest in low income nations where they are losing biodiversity they are you know, facing floods and droughts. Um, so our first responsibility is here and it's to massively reduce our impact on the planet. And that means insulating our homes. 27 million homes in the UK need insulating properly. That creates a lot of good local skilled jobs. We need to get out of our cars and actually, you know, if you can, if you live in a city, if you have the ability, you need to take away some of the convenience that life has allowed and say, you know what, why do I own a car? Why can't I be part of a local car sharing scheme? And and right to that car sharing scheme, you know, we there's five of us in this street. If you bought a car here, we would actually use it. So we need to give up some of these luxuries because the idea of us just saying, oh, well, you know, we've got everything, but so sorry, you can't have it is is absurd and wrong and deeply unjust. So we need to transform our own lives. I think we also need multinational corporations just need to stop advertising this Western lifestyle around the world. And of course, that's the downside of global advertising and the internet and the media and, and major companies going in. Are you hopeful, though, Kate, as humans, that we have more altruism in us? You know, this is the kindness economy. You, to me, it was about, you know, looking at humanity within business, looking at how we are affecting our planet. We talk, I know, people, planet and profit. It's, um, do you have hope and... Where do you think we'll be in, say, five years' time? Well, certainly, you just said, do I have hope that we have more altruism in us? So I have knowledge that we have far more altruism in us than economics has told us. So just let's deal with that little character of humanity at the heart of economics. Again, these are theories written by men. John Stuart Mill, brilliant philosopher. He said, you know, e economics doesn't treat the whole of humanity's nature. It sees him as a being who desires to um, accumulate wealth. And that's just how we define, he said, when we're talking about humanity and economics, we're just going to deal with that. OK, so this is just a being who desires to accumulate wealth. 
So he cut out this little caricature from day one. And then what the theorists did over the decades and years was just add in more caricatures to make something that could be really convenient to model. So we get this little character now called Rational Economic Man, who stands at the heart of the majority of mainstream economic models. He is a man because he's got no children for sure. He's not doing any unpaid caring work for anybody. He's a man. He stands alone. He's not influenced by his neighbours. No, 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 no. I'm totally not influenced by advertising really either. I'm totally making my own decisions here. I know what I want. He's got money in his hand because that's the way he interacts with the world. He's got ego in his heart because his self-interest is what drives him. He's got a calculator in his head because he can compare the price of everything instantaneously, all the world over all times, so that he can make the perfect rational decision. And he's got nature at his feet. The living world is a sort of play store in which he operates. And this character is incredibly dangerous, not because how absurdly narrow he is. It's because on seeing him and being told that he is like us, we actually become more like him. It's called the performativity of models. Models perform on us. They change us. And it's shown that economic students, as they go through their education from year one to year two to year three, over time, they more say they value the traits of competition and self-interest over altruism and collaboration. So they become more like the model. And that means we urgently have to put a far more realistic model of humanity. Do you know what? We're the most social of all mammals. Beyond our immediate kin, we collaborate, we share, we cooperate, we support, we assist, and of course we compete, but we are far more collaborative. That's why human societies exist and we can pass each other in the street without fearing for our back. So let's start economics with actually the full potential of humanity to collaborate, to reciprocate. We are um, conditional cooperators. I'll cooperate with you if so long as I keep believing you're going to cooperate back with me. Well, you know, if you if you cheat on me two or three times, I'm going to start actually changing the way. But until then, I'm cooperating with you. So we've got to put that at the heart of our vision, because it's actually the reality of humanity that most people know, especially anyone who does work in community, who works in neighbourhoods. It depends upon building that collaboration. It's not easy work, but it's absolutely a trait of ours. So am I hopeful? You know, I don't deal much in the idea of hope because I sometimes hear hope and it sounds like kind of a word with its fingers crossed. Well, I hope it turns out right. Or other people use hope, kind of hope with its sleeves rolled up. Come on, I've got hope and I'm going to get onto it. But I, I think more in terms of, you know, don't be an optimist if it makes you relax because there are plenty of relaxed optimists who say we've got the technology, we've sold things before, the prices will kick in, don't worry, we'll get there, the markets will come round. Because I just don't believe that's so. But also don't be an, a pessimist if it makes you give up because there's plenty of pessimists who've given up and they say it's too late and it's too hard and we're too many, it's too big and it's too difficult. And if you sit back, well, all of that will be true. So instead, be in action. Be in action in all the spaces in life that you have influence, whether you're a consultant in a boardroom or the CEO in that boardroom or the youngest graduate in that boardroom who dares to put up their hand. Because you know what? CEOs are terrified of the new graduate because the new graduate asks the question that all the other graduates are going to be asking. If the CEO can't answer it, they know the company is falling behind. If you're an, a mum or a dad at the school gates, you are influential with parents at the school gates. If you're a student in the classroom, you can put up your hand and ask why you're not being taught these things. You're a teacher. You can start teaching them in your classroom. If you're a community organiser, you can just write to people on your community WhatsApp group and say, should we get together and talk about this? So we all have amazing potential for creating influence. And one of the most beneficial pieces of research come out in recent years is that people, when, if you want to see people change their behaviour, we're really, really highly influenced by what we think our peers are doing. So like my partner and I, we decided at the beginning of this year, we just looked at each other and we thought, we 
know enough about climate change. We just can't justify having a car. It's really convenient in our lives, but we just can't justify it anymore. We live in a city. There's a car sharing scheme around the corner. So we just called up a company, said, could you please come and take this away? And I'll be honest, it was really hard. The days between we said, take it away. And it was still there. And they were, they said, we can't come tomorrow. We'll come tomorrow. Please just take it away. I've made this choice and actually change is hard. It's just before you make it. And it was really interesting to feel that. Am I really letting go of this car? It's full of memories. It's full of summer holidays. It's full of journeys with my kids. Ah, yeah, actually, it's the summer holiday memories, my kids that I want to keep. I'll let go of the car. But then as soon as it had gone, the liberation and then we thought what we really don't want is people just to park in the space where we've created. So we've chalked it up in colour. We built a snowman in it when it snowed. But I also sent a message to the street WhatsApp group just to say, hey, folks, just to let you know, we've we decided to let go of our car because, you know, there's a car sharing scheme all around us. There's actually five cars in the streets around for anybody else who can. And it's usual, you know, you might want to do that because I know that that has influence. And other people might be at that point and a couple of people say, oh, I've signed up. I'm going to use that. And we start to tip each other into this future that we already know we want. So we can all have influence and we're all very powerful in networks that other people can't touch. And if people start doing that, that gives me hope. I, I'm with you on that. I love this. I mean, when you talked about um, the performative of the, the culture, that you, you, the, the business model, sorry, the economics, you know, that was the economic man. And you found that after, you know, mm. women would shift into that performance. I was the same in business, you know, I loved what I did. And then suddenly mm. you see, well, that's how businessmen perform. That's the way that they're doing. It. And I found myself doing it and lost my identity, lost who I was. And was like, what am I doing? Mm, this is wow. crazy. It was true. And I, I remember it like... How did you get it back? Um, uh, just through, I think, connecting what you said totally to go where my energy was. And there were times it was really, really difficult. And and I actually remember, well, I've, I've just been listening to Mark Carney doing those wreath um, lectures, which I've been loving about reshaping financial markets. And I actually thought he must have been affected too by this performative pressure that you talk about yeah. because why didn't he talk about that when he was the governor of the bank of england so i've sort of taken <laughs> that pressure off myself and go well you knew that then mark carney a clever canadian why didn't mm. you talk about that then and we could have maybe made more progress so i think for me it was um mm. I, interestingly my creativity and my energy was what got me onto the board and then once i was on there i thought oh, i've got to be like you and I lost that, but I, I well, I got it back by leaving and, and creating my own culture. So I think what you say, I think the the lovely message that we're coming out of here, Kate, is from a, a wonderfully strong uh, woman. It's been fantastic talking to you, but it's active. Get your peers. You can do this, the smallest, but I love that, you know, standing by the school gates. We are all in this, you know. I always talk about, you know, every pound is a vote on how we want to live. And when you look... Yes. How many women and how influential we are in spending power. <laughs> That's where I go. Yes. That's the sweet spot. Yes. And when it comes to change makers, actually, very often it's not the person standing on a stage who's the most inspiring person. What I'm seeing in the work we're doing at Donut Economics Action Lab, the most inspiring people is someone just like you, but who's already doing that thing that you thought was impossible. So a teacher will be inspired by a teacher who's already teaching. 
amazing new ideas. A, a mayor will be inspired by a mayor who is saying, yeah, of course we're going to become a thriving city rather than focus on growing. A CEO will be inspired by a leading CEO and a, and a new graduate by another new graduate and a community organiser by a community organiser. So at Donut Connect Action Lab, we invite people, anyone to join and to see the power of what other people are doing. And that's the way it's right. I mean, it's just rolling out right now. It's picking up from Amsterdam to Copenhagen to Brussels to Berlin to California to Malaysia to Costa Rica to Bangladesh. There are people saying, yeah, we want to do this because they're seeing what other places are doing and how they're picking it up. And so we're just really excited. And we are, I'll just finish by saying that when it comes to the world of business, we're being most cautious in this space. And I'll tell you why. We're being very open with the concept of the donut and saying, you know, we've put it in the commons and anyone can use it and adapt it. But we've got to hold that openness with an integrity of the core ideas. And there's a real risk, and I've seen, I've seen it happen to other ideas, and I've seen it almost happen here, that big mainstream companies that don't really want to do much transformation, but like, like a nice, um, fun, trendy idea. Woke message, uh, oh, a nice woke we, message. A nice woke message that'll look good on the, you know, would you make a five minute video, a, a, major, a major UK bank wrote to me, would you make a five minute video about the donut and we'll put it on our bank? And I said, no, sorry, because <laughs> you ain't done nothing to transform. Why would I want the donut on your bank website? No. Um, so actually with companies, we're saying, if you want to use the donut as a tool, Please do. But it's a tool for internal reflection. Please don't go running out there and saying in public presentations and in your marketing and your branding that you're using the donut. No, 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 no. Do the work. Reflect on your purpose, networks, governance, ownership and finance. And then later, we're actually going to start inviting companies into dialogue with us so that we make sure that this doesn't get co-opted and watered down in the way that there's a very, very real risk that happens with business. So we're really looking forward to engaging it with business, but on terms that protect the core of the idea. In, in summary, we always say when, when business as usual meets a disruptive idea, something's going to get transformed. And it's our job to make sure it's not the donut. And we would love to work with businesses that really do want to transform themselves. Kate Rayworth, that was a wonderful morning chat. I've really enjoyed it. Great connecting and, with you. Um, you too, at long last. Yes. <laughs> Next week, I'm talking to Amanda Levite, who's an architect who firmly believes that what we build has the power to communicate on every level. She says architecture touches us in so many different aspects of what it is to be human. It's culture and aesthetics, obviously, but it's also politics, economics, urban planning and history, she says. It's helping us find our place in the world with a future that is so very uncertain. It's so important not to lose confidence in what the future could be. So join me next week to find out how the kindness economy could be embodied in the very buildings we create for our future lives. Mm -hmm.